Welcome to Artscoping. I'm your host, Max Anderson. The artist Amy Sherald recently watched her 2012 painting Welfare Queen sell for $3.9 million, double its $1.2 to $1.8 million estimate, in the 20th century and contemporary evening sale at Phillips, New York. In the United States, there are no federal laws governing resale royalties for artists. As a result, Sherald saw no benefit from the huge escalation in market value since she first sold it less than a decade ago. As the four authors of an op-ed in Artnet this past week note, the Souls Grown Deep Foundation, recognizing this injustice, put in place an Artist Resale Royalty Award program in 2020, which you can read more about at our website, soulsgrowndeep.org. It's a placeholder until we can get federal legislation passed to mandate such payments to artists following secondary and subsequent sales. This week, we turn to Min Jung Kim, the new director of the St. Louis Art Museum, to hear about her first few weeks on the job. We have these staff service awards, and just a few weeks ago, I had the honor of recognizing a number of staff for their years of dedication and service in five-year increments, and many of them had been at the museum 20 years, 25 years, 30 years, 35 years. It was really quite amazing. That's Min Jung Kim, the Barbara B. Taylor Director at the St. Louis Art Museum. She's the 11th person and first woman to lead the museum in its 142-year history. From 2015 to 2021, she served as the New Britain Museum of American Art's sixth director, bringing more than 25 years of experience in the art museum field. She is former deputy director of the Eli and Edith Broad Art Museum at Michigan State University in East Lansing, Michigan. Previously, she worked at the Guggenheim Museum for nearly 13 years, with a focus on a variety of international alliances and collaborative initiatives. As program director of content alliances, Kim helped establish partnerships among the Guggenheim, the State Hermitage Museum in St. Petersburg, Russia, and the Kunsthistorisches Museum in Vienna, Austria, among other international initiatives. Kim has an MA in Art History from the Courtauld Institute of Art, University of London, where she specialized in contemporary art, and a BA in Art History from Wheaton College in Norton, Massachusetts. Min, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. You're pretty new to St. Louis. How has the move been? Well, it's been great. It's been um, a little over two months since being here in St. Louis and uh, a lot to absorb, to get to know a new museum, a new city, a new community, but very, very excited to be here. You know the Midwest, though. You had that experience before. I did. Um, I was in Michigan for about two years, and that was a really wonderful experience, my first time in the Midwest. That being said, I'm just beginning to learn the differences of uh, different states within the Midwest, uh, including, of course, St. Louis versus East Lansing, where I was for a number of years. And you had a welcome, Matt, because the city experienced a magnitude 4.0 earthquake last week. (laughs) Were there any issues for either your family or the collection? There were none. Uh, We really barely, if if at all, noticed it. And of course, the museum, uh, understanding that there's always a risk of earthquakes, have different mitigating um, risks and strategies in place. No, last week, thankfully, knock on wood, um, no issues there whatsoever. Yeah, good. I wanted to start with the fact that the museum field saw really an evaporation of in-person visitors for now almost two years and only a tepid return since vaccines became available. 
You've worked in New York, as I mentioned, where tourism is a primary source of visitors, as well as East Lansing, where it was not. And museums, both in and out of New York, survived this pandemic without attendance. And I want to ask you if it's time to acknowledge that, like libraries, the case for museum support should rest not on how many people cross the door entrance, but the integrity, the quality of what it offers. Well, I guess I would say that Um, at least in my experience, museum support always rests on the quality of what it offers. Really, at the end of the day, attendance is impacted by the caliber of what museums present in terms of its collection, its exhibitions, and its programs. Today's museum visitors are incredibly sophisticated, and they continue to have high expectations of what we can offer And our competition for attracting visitors to the museum is really no longer other museums or cultural institutions. It's not even sports or other leisure time activities. Rather, I think our competition is really people's time. Mm -hmm. And time, of course, has always been a precious commodity, but it's perhaps even more so today, especially in a world where our Our attention is split in a myriad of directions. You know, the key question is, how do we make a case that museums are worth people's time? And that's probably the million dollar question that all museums are asking. And I certainly can't claim that I have the answer, but it is what prompts many of us in the field, myself included, to try and find meaningful ways to connect with our audiences and to create content and to program so that we can be and can remain relevant. And being relevant you know, to international audiences as a museum in New York, where, as you said, Max, tourism is a primary source for visitors, means something very different yeah. than the relevance that you might be trying to achieve in East Lansing, Michigan, for instance. Because the museum's audience is different, its mission is different, its community is different. And so whether you're in New York or East Lansing or New Britain, Connecticut, where mm-hmm. I was, or now here in St. Louis, Missouri, you know, the integrity and the quality of what museums have to offer, I think, must by necessity be tied to its place and its context and its community. And mm-hmm. so Measuring success by attendance museums alone might be missing the bigger picture because equally, if not even more importantly, it's also about looking at who's coming to the museum and if they're coming for return, repeat visits, and whether there's an opportunity for more longer-term engagement. Arthur Cohen has written about this, of course, and had these successive studies about how the public is now thinking about culture in ways that previously might not have. Taco trucks, he counts Mm -hmm. as culture, (laughs) and everything imaginable in terms of distractions. I think you're making a point about, more generally, the attention span and interest level of people. Right. Let me ask you about another facet of that, which is economic impact studies, which were the darling of museums for pre-pandemic times. And I've always felt that they're misguided, because the implication is that If you have a lot of visitors, you must matter. And given that museums haven't had crowds, I don't think they matter any less. 
Do you think that economic impact studies are really a measurement of true value and importance, or can they be misleading for people? I can see how in some cases, data from economic impact studies can be a useful tool to communicate when it's needed, quantifiable evidence that the arts and museums add value, especially when it's to a specific region in order to unlock government support, for instance. But I also absolutely believe that museums should be measured by many other things, including the degree to which they serve their constituencies. Mm -hmm. And so it may not be simply about choosing between qualitative data, which I must admit is in and of itself challenging to define and to present. Nevertheless, that versus more quantitative data And maybe it comes down to not having to choose so that it's an either or, but a both and. I'm generally of the view that we pretty much need everything in our arsenal to make the case that museums do matter. And the mother load of information really has been about attendance. The art newspaper does an annual survey counting the number of people entering per day in big shows. So much of high attendance in the past was generated by very costly special exhibitions, which museums have been slow to rekindle as the pandemic is receding. Do you think that those big shows are going to come about as before in cities other than tourist-infused New York? Well, I think both pre and if there even is such a thing (laughs) post-pandemic, Yeah. There's always a risk involved when attendance is meant to be driven by a heavy reliance on expe- uh, expensive special exhibitions. And we see that with rising costs, along with the incredible financial duress that many museums have experienced, I think museums are becoming risk averse to putting all of our eggs in one blockbuster basket. So by necessity, this may be a good time for us to reevaluate the rationale for big, costly exhibitions and shifting the emphasis more towards understanding visitors' needs and mm. their interests. What do they want to see? You know, are there exhibitions that could be more locally relevant? Um, can we create room for more voices to be heard? And are there partnerships to be explored? Because ultimately, I think we need to expand the conversation about attendance by also acknowledging that while exhibitions may indeed be one of the single biggest drivers of attendance, it's also not the only one. Mm-hmm. You know, it's also about the programs we offer, the artists that we collect, the collection that we develop, the communities that we serve the voices that we amplify, the relationships and collaborations that we develop, and really the institutional values that a museum represents that all together collectively and over time resonates with audiences and compels them to visit from both near and Mm -hmm. far. Part of this has to be about how we welcome people to museums. Like most major museums in the Midwest and your former institution, the MSU Broad Art Museum, the St. Louis Art Museum has no general admission charge. How do you feel that policy affects your thinking about the museum's mission and its impact? 
Yeah, you know, you're absolutely right. The the, the Broad MSU and the St. Louis Art Museum um, are both free, um, and they're free in order to serve its key constituents. You know, in the case of the Broad MSU, they are the students and the faculty of Michigan State University, as well as its surrounding regional community, particularly given that that it represents the only contemporary art museum in something like a 60-mile radius, but also as a museum that promotes teaching and learning, free access, I think, becomes key. And since it's a, it's a fairly young museum having opened in 2013, I think it continues to explore opportunities about what that exactly means as part of its mission and its impact. By contrast, the St. Louis Art Museum has a much longer history, one that I'm getting more acquainted to early into my tenure. Um, It has a 142-year history, and quite remarkably, it's offered free general admission uh, to the museum for over a century. And in part, it was because of the way in which the museum was structured, and um, the St. Louis Art Museum you know, just to give a little context, became uh, the recipient of city tax support as early as 1909. And by the 1970s, state legislation and voter approval created what is called the Zoo Museum District, which happens to be one of the largest tax-supported cultural districts in the country. So this tax levy support from St. Louis city and county really create an enduring revenue stream. And in exchange, the museum is free. So as a museum whose major funding comes from regional taxes and is free to the public, the St. Louis Art Museum has a built-in relationship with the community. And we continue to prioritize this responsibility everywhere from its governance structure, where Our board of commissioners comprise members chosen by the city and the county, Mm -hmm. reflecting our civic role to the continued awareness of the demographics of the St. Louis city and county and how it relates to the demographics of our visitors and is reflected in our programs and activities and acquisitions. And so it's no um, coincidence that um, the phrase dedicated to art and free to all is quite literally engraved in stone above our um, front entrance, which is intended and meant to indicate that kind of a strong commitment and guiding ethos. So I think it has a huge impact and is a reflection of our mission. And I tend to think the commercial paradigm that has been seductive to some museums Those are things that really require you to think, who are we serving? What do they need? What can we do to assist in providing that? Do you think that charging for visitors is probably more a function of cities that have big tourism? Is that the normal reason that that happens in your view? Not necessarily. The challenge is there's no one size fits all for museums. Every Mm -hmm. museum is so very different based on where it's located, indeed, whether it's in a more urban environment or in a more rural or suburban setting. I think it really depends on its community, its key constituents, its governance structure. Mm -hmm. Um, There are so many different factors that I think 
make it very difficult to apply a set of circumstances that could be applicable to mm -hmm. museums in that general context. In general, this will continue to be a set of challenges that all museums, regardless of where they're located, will and already are grappling with. You also have a sculpture park, which I haven't visited, but it opened just a few years ago. How do you plan to activate that in the coming years? Honestly, I think there remain some extraordinary opportunities, but none that I know quite yet as I'm yeah. getting to know all of the possibilities. Come on, eight so, weeks. You're not ready to tell me the future <laughs> of the sculpture garden. <laughs> what I will say is I have a greater appreciation for not only the sculpture park, but also the museum as a whole, having arrived here in St. Louis. And I must say, I had admittedly never been to St. Louis until I started coming here for my interview. But on the one hand, knowing about where the museum is located was one thing, but to be able to experience it on the ground was altogether something different specifically because of its location in Forest Park, which is one of the largest urban parks in the country. It is 50% larger than Central Park. It is a gorgeous setting, and the Zoo Museum District that I mentioned really is the entity through which public support is directed towards essentially five organizations, four of which are actually located in Forest Park, the St. Louis Art Museum being one, the zoo, the botanical gardens, and the science center, and then the history museum. The four that are located in Forest Park are all free. So everything that I've described as it pertains to the museum, each in their respective organizational ways, this ethos of recognizing who we are and in service to our community is all brought together in this immediate vicinity, which I think makes for an incredible setting to be thinking about not only our interior spaces, but our exterior spaces and the points at which we both connect and intersect. You mentioned coming to St. Louis for the interview. I'm sure you're tired of being asked about being the first woman and the first person of color in your new job. I'm wondering, though, how much progress do you think has been made within the ranks of the Association of Art Museum Directors in those terms since you started back in New Britain six years ago? Well, when I started at the New Britain Museum of American Art, I'm glad to say that I was not that museum's first female director. But I was the first director who is Asian and first-generation immigrant. Um, so that was specific to the New Britain Museum of American Art. I yeah. think over the years, there have been several studies. I think the AEMD also had done a study in 2015 that really illuminated the work that really still needed to be done. And I think recently, I think it was in 2018, the Mellon Foundation did another study or a demographic survey about oh. art museum staff. And three years later, I think there, it, on the one hand, it was mixed. There were some upticks in seeing some small incremental growths and in seeing more females represented at museum leadership levels. And also 
very, very sm small growth in uh, the representation of people of color in mm -hmm. senior leadership positions such as directors. So that was three years ago, and I don't know where we are today. But of course, I keep track of a lot of the news and announcements of many of my colleagues who have taken on new positions. So I think we are seeing some progress being made. Maybe it's not enough, <laughs> <laughs> but I also think it's really important that not only do we see progress, but we continue to see progress and that it's sustained rather than in response to these upticks as part of a trend. I think George Floyd's murder absolutely had a catalytic effect on the consciousness of both boards and staff and communities and has had a salutary effect in rethinking mission, mandate, and the extension of that. It's also made staff more activist and vocal, and in many ways, I think it's changing the landscape. I wanted to ask you, as a specialist in contemporary art, you've assumed responsibility for a huge collection over five millennia, one of the great collections really in this country. Do you foresee a greater emphasis on the art of our time in your program? Well, the short answer is probably yes. <laughs> but I suppose it's also worth pointing out that all art was contemporary for its time. So, you know, as we see artists today who continue to express and, and reflect issues that are part of our lives, I am interested in not only learning from curatorial colleagues, but in learning more, also continuing to create opportunities to connect contemporary art and art of our time with similar issues and a continuity of themes that have existed across millennia. So that's something that I'm really eager and excited to explore further. Min, people are curious always when a new director starts, what's the first week like? What was it like in terms of the bath of information, meeting new people, faces, contexts? Can you give us a little flavor of what your first few days on the job were like? Well, the very first thing that I did on my first day was meet the entire staff at a breakfast reception that we did. And um, I had an opportunity to meet everyone, which was both overwhelming and exciting <laughs> at the same yeah. time. And of course, because of the number of people I was meeting did not afford a lot of time and meaningful time to spend with each and every one. It was really wonderful to get to know everyone. And then really my biggest priority was getting to know the staff. Some of it was designed as a series of tours. Of course, I did a number of collection tours with respective curators in their specific areas of expertise. But I also did building tours, operation tours, emergency evacuation tours, hospitality tours as a way of really going throughout the museum, meeting with staff, hearing from them, learning from them. And it's just been incredible. We have an, a, an incredible team and they are all immensely dedicated 
and we have these staff service awards. And just a few weeks ago, I had the honor of recognizing a number of staff for their years of dedication and service in five-year increments. And many of them had been at the museum 20 years, 25 years, 30 years, 35 years. It was really quite amazing. Have you had a chance to spend some time in the storerooms and gotten to know the registrars and the art handlers? I have, but somewhat limited due to COVID. Mm, (laughs) Yeah. Not quite as we would have in pre-COVID times. But yes, absolutely, a wealth of, of knowledge and information, and I'm trying to spend as much time as possible in the storerooms, as you say, as well as, of course, in the galleries, but also meeting with our security guards, gallery attendants, our frontline staff. You gain so much insights from many of them. I was having a conversation with one of our gallery attendants who had talked about sometimes being in somewhat uncomfortable situations with the public when they ask questions about why certain exhibitions were designed a particular way or pedestal placement was in a specifically inconvenient spot to the actual works of art. And and I think I'm very interested in finding ways where that kind of really insightful feedback could potentially be brought in earlier in the process when the exhibitions may even still be in its conceptual stages. Of course, there's a history to the museum with architecture. I'm wondering if there's any facet of the buildings that took you by surprise. Well, I'm still learning my way (laughs) throughout the building, but it's really interesting to understand the history, including the entire series of connected museums that over time has really evolved. And the fact that we moved into our current location in Forest Park, as I mentioned in 1906, into this Beaux-Arts style building designed by Cass Gilbert, that was really the only permanent structure to be created for the 1904 World's Fair. And then in 2005, an additional expansion made through the British architect, Sir David Chipperfield. So I think each building has a particular moment in time and place and purpose and function throughout the history, all of which I'm just taking in and appreciating as part of the larger context of this museum. Well, I won't press too many things. I know people are asking you for the future casting. What does Min want to do? And you're still in a process of figuring all that out. So I'm grateful so earlier in your tenure, you'd make some time to chat with me. Thank you, Max, so much for having me. It's really been a pleasure. We've been speaking with Min Jung Kim, the Barbara B. Taylor Director of the St. Louis Art Museum. Until next time, this is Max Anderson of Artscoping.